we as New Testament Christians, as children of the living God and members of, of the Lord's church, are so infinitely, incredibly, and unbelievably blessed. We are blessed beyond our ability to even begin to ask or imagine that we would have that kind of understanding. We are blessed so much, absolutely and infinitely more than any other person on the planet. Did you know that? Do you live that every day? Do you understand that you are more blessed as a Christian than anybody else on the planet? Think about that. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 7 reads as follows. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That ought to blow your mind. But he's just getting started. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as or in the same way as he chose us in Christ for the foundation of the world. He chose those who would choose to be in Christ. He chose us who were in Christ before the before before God created the heavens and the earth. He had a plan that included all of us that are in Christ. Isn't that incredible? That we should be holy and without blame before him. No matter what we've done, we can be holy and without blame before our almighty God because of Christ. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Christ Jesus to himself. God had a plan whereby he in all of his holiness and righteousness would send his son Jesus to die for us so that those of us who accepted that free gift of his cleansing power, there was a plan in place to adopt us. You are an adopted child of God. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's all because of God's grace by which he, not us, he has made us, you and me, accepted in the beloved. God has made you accepted before him in Christ. Isn't that incredible? Church, that, 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 don't let that slide off your minds like water on a pane of glass. He has made us past tense, accepted in, in the beloved. How? Well, he goes on to say, in him we have redemption. Not we will have, not we might have, not we should have. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. No wonder Peter would write in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people 
that you should proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but you're now the people of God. You once had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. The only person who can truly appreciate that is the person who truly understands that God is sinless, holy, righteous, and pure, and we weren't. And there was nothing that we could do to make it right with God, so God made it right for us in the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that, you're not going to appreciate that to the fullest. But it gets better. Say, how can it get better? Well, those who keep the word of God, those who follow him by doing his will, also have the promise in scripture of the very presence of God in their lives, the very presence of God. Turn to me to John 14, verses 21 through 23. John 14, 21 through 23. Covered this recently in the adult class. Jesus said, he who has my commandments, John 14, 21, and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or make myself known to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, asks him, says, well, Lord, how is it you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Watch this. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, by keeping his commandments, as he said in, in verse 21, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The presence of God every day, every second of every minute of your life. We are so incredibly blessed. We as, as New Testament children of the living God, it tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us if we're in Christ. Co-heirs with Christ. That's what it means. If you're a co-heir with somebody, if somebody dies and leaves you something and you have to share it, you're co-heir with somebody else, it, it's equally yours. We are co-heirs with Christ, it says in Romans. What a life. Then you die and it gets better. We talked last week about the good side of Hades, right? Paradise, as a Christian, you die and you go to Hades, the good side, pleasure park, Abraham's bosom, call it what you will. And then you know what happens? That's just a waiting place because it even gets better after that come judgment day and you get to live in heaven with God for eternity. Isn't that awesome? We are so incredibly, incredibly, incredibly blessed. This love and this joy and this mercy and this forgiveness and this re restored relationship with God is what God has wanted, God has desired, God has been seeking to share with every person on the planet since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. God wants everybody, everybody to have that. He wants everybody to have what we have so much that he gave his son, as we have celebrated and remembered this morning, that, that he gave his son. And he, he let him go through. In fact, it was God's will that, that he did offer him up for us. God said, you're worth my son. And so he offered him up to Calvary and to everything that he went through and, and the scourging and the punishment as well as, as Jesus paying the equivalent of eternity in hell for every single sin ever committed. That's what God was willing to do just to give you and I these incredible blessings that we have.
But you know, there's so many in our world, so many desperately lost and hurting people who have rejected all that, who've rejected these incredible blessings that we could spend lifetimes talking about and not scratch the surface of. They've rejected everything that God wants to share with them, wants to do for them. You know what that makes God do? That makes God cry. Wouldn't it you? That made God weep. In Isaiah 53, it describes what the Messiah would be like in these terms. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The Messiah would be one smitten by God. He'd be acquainted with grief. He's well familiar with grief. And you know, there are two places in the Bible where it says Jesus wept. There are two that indicate that, that use the term that way. So, and we know the first one is John eleven thirty five. We know in the death of Lazarus, we know like they've always said, the old joke in the churches of Christ, if you want to tell kids to memorize a Bible verse and bring it back next week, most of them are going to pick John eleven thirty five because it's the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept, right? Rather than, you know, some long lengthy thing. Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. John eleven thirty five. If you get into the context there and you really study it, you find that there's more going on than just the loss of Lazarus. As you really get into it, you will see that Jesus appears to be very perplexed over death itself and all it's done to his creation. But my question this morning is, have you ever considered what exactly on earth could possibly be strong enough, besides John eleven thirty five, to make God in the flesh weep. Jesus was God in the flesh. What on earth could possibly be painful enough to God in the flesh, the creator, to bring tears of sorrow flooding down his face for the second time that we have that recorded? You know, Stop and think about, before we answer that question, some of the times we don't see Jesus recorded as weeping. Have you ever stopped and think about that? What are some of the times we don't see Jesus recorded as weeping? Times that, that apparently weren't painful enough to bring God in the flesh to tears, or at least if it did, it's not recorded. Think about some of those times. They weren't quite, they weren't enough, apparently, because we don't see him weeping in those situations. Well, sometimes people cry at funerals. We don't see Jesus recorded as crying or weeping when his near kinsman, John the Baptist, was put to death by Herod. Although Jesus did spend some time away by himself, Matthew chapter 14 and verse 13, he did spend some time away. 
but it's not recorded that he wept. Doesn't mean he didn't, but it wasn't recorded that he wept there. As we consider some of the events that night that he was arrested, we don't see Jesus weeping when his 11 best friends and closest associates in all the world who'd been with him for three and a half years left him alone to face the wrath of those who hated and wanted to kill him. When they all deserted him, we don't see Jesus crying when they fled. We don't see Jesus recorded as crying or weeping while he was being beaten by the Roman soldiers when he was taken into the praetorium and they took turns swinging at him. We don't see Jesus recorded as weeping when they took what was believed to be that crown of thorns with two inch spikes on it and drove it down into his head. We don't see Jesus recorded as weeping when the Roman soldiers are ripping the very flesh and blood from his back as they scourge him. We don't see Jesus where it's recorded that he wept even when they drove a spike through his wrist. Do you see anywhere in the scriptures when they drove the spike through his wrist where Jesus wept? It's not recorded that he did at that point. Must have been about the most painful thing he went through, wouldn't you say? Physically? but it wasn't enough to bring him to tears. Or at least it wasn't recorded that he was brought to tears. So what on earth? If those things couldn't do it, what, what, what could have caused him? Now, now, by way of just explaining, it does tell us in Hebrews 5 and verse 7, it does say that he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears, referring to either the Garden of Gethsemane, the cross of Calvary, or, or somewhere, it does say that in Hebrews 5, 7. But where it specifically talks about him weeping in a certain place, what could possibly be more painful than the death of a near kinsman, desertion by all of your friends and closest associates, beating, torturing, scourging, scourging driving spikes through your hands? What, what, what could possibly be more painful than that that would cause Jesus to weep? I suggest to you this morning there's something else that appears to have heard at least as much as all of those things and maybe more because it brought Jesus to tears. There was something else so unbearably painful that it brought tears coming from the Savior's all-seeing eyes for only the second time in all of Scripture we see it recorded that Jesus wept. Let's set a little background before we get to that spot. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 18. spend most of our time in Luke this morning. In Luke chapter 18, <clears throat> if we were to look down here in verses 35 through 43, we'd see that Jesus is entering Jericho, a small town outside of Jerusalem. There's a blind beggar there. We would add a few other parts of this account from the other gospel accounts, but suffice to let Luke this morning tell it to us. We see that there was this beggar and he's blind and he wants Jesus to heal him. And Jesus stops the procession, all of this big crowd of disciples following him, big crowd of folks, he stops, 
and he heals this man. Can you imagine seeing somebody who legitimately was blind, legitimately and instantaneously healed? I mean 20-20, I mean no glasses, contacts, nothing. I mean, boom. That's what they saw. Because Jesus don't do things halfway. So we, we see that. We see that the crowd saw that. As he goes through Jericho and we continue on in Luke, we see his account, encounter with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the wee little man that we talk about in Bible class as is, is youngsters maybe. And the crowds see that. They see Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1 through 10. After relating to them another parable in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, as he's on his way into Jerusalem, look with me in verse 28 of Luke 19. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He told him another parable, and, and now he's getting really close to the city. Came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you. Where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And of course, if we were to read verses 32 through 34, we'd find out that's exactly what happened. And then we'd move on, verse 35. Then they brought him, that is the colt, to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt. They set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives toward the city of Jerusalem, the whole multitude of the disciples, and think what they had seen, from, from the healing to, to everything that this group that's following him this day had seen, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They are excited. They are jubilant. They have seen so many awesome things at the hand of Jesus. They begin singing, saying, breaking into this, this, this chorus, if you will. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I don't know if they said it or they sung it, but it says here they said it. So they at the very least said it. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher, calm them down. Stop them from saying this. You have no right. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city. And he, number two time, wept over it. Jesus saw the city of Jerusalem and it brought him to tears. He wept over it. So many difficult things on Jesus didn't bring him to tears, but this did, according to the divine record. He wept. Now, obviously some in this crowd that had followed him were probably residents of Jerusalem. They'd seen a lot of things. They were ready to cry out, blessed is the king. 
But Jesus weeps over the city, weeps over them, saying, and this is why, watch this closely, saying, verse 42, if you had known, and picture Jesus weeping as he says this, crying. He doesn't just say it. It says he wept, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. We don't often think of Jesus crying. But as he's saying these words, he's crying. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they won't leave in you one stone upon another. Jesus is crying because he knows what's coming. And if you know anything about history and the destruction of Jerusalem, this is one of the most horrible, awful, terrible, unbelievable things that ever happened in the history of mankind. I won't go into the gory details, but it was, it was awful beyond imagination. And he knew it was coming. And so Jesus cries as he says these words. Well, well, why is all of this going to happen? Why are they going to be leveled and, and their children killed and, and all of this stuff and no stone? He tells them, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't understand what I came to give you. Remember all that stuff I talked about, those incredible blessings at the beginning of the, the sermon this morning? Remember all Jesus came to give those to everybody, right? And he's saying to these people, uh, uh, he's weeping over them. He said, you're, you're going to be destroyed and you're going to be without all of that because you didn't understand. That's what I want you to have. God's wanted everybody to have this since the beginning of time. That's why the plan, that's why Jesus, and he, he's letting them know, you didn't understand. I was here to visit you. I was here to bring these things to you, and you didn't understand that. They didn't want to understand it. We know from, from accounts here, hardened hearts, and we could go through a whole bunch in the Gospels, but, you know, they could have had peace, couldn't they? They could have had peace from God. They could have had peace with God. And they could have had the God of peace with them, and they could have been with the God of peace for all eternity. And Jesus knows that. He said, that's why he's crying. You, you, I came to give you all of this, all of it, and you just wouldn't take it. It was theirs for the asking. It was theirs for the taking. But now, they're going to suffer. They are going to suffer unlike most people have ever imagined suffering. They're going to suffer at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Then they're going to suffer in torment in Hades. And then they're going to suffer in eternal hell because they did not accept all these wonderful gifts that God just came begging to give them and poured out his life to give them. They didn't want it. It's all needless. Brethren, this is the thing. If there's a key word this morning, it's needless. That's why Jesus is crying. It's so needless. He came with his hands out to give it all to them. All they had to do was take it. Free charge. And their suffering would be needless. He said, no. No. You did not know the time of your visitation. And so God in the flesh, knowing what they were turning down, cried over them. Jesus wept. 
And you know, there's some other places in the scriptures where obviously, again, these are the two places that talks about Jesus wept, but there are a few other places in the scriptures that although it does not tell us that he wept, knowing what he knew, he must have had at least great sadness in his heart. If not great sadness in his heart, similar sentiments, maybe even wanting to cry on other occasions, and I'm not trying to read anything into the text, but listen, if Jesus would cry over those people that just wouldn't accept the gifts, there's a lot of other places in scripture where we see something very similar, isn't there? Let me, let me share a few with you this morning. In Luke chapter four, please turn back there, and we'll stay pretty much in the book of Luke, as I said, in Luke chapter four, Jesus comes back to his hometown, comes back to his hometown Nazareth where he had been brought up, it says in Luke 4 and verse 16. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. He reads from the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah as we know, and he applies it to those people and they are irate. They are killing mad. As a matter of fact, look at verses 28 through 30. Verses 28 through 30 of Luke chapter 4. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city. They took Jesus out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him over a cliff. And passing through their midst of him, he went his way. You know that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem that wouldn't take what he had to offer. How do you think he felt that day when he was in his own hometown? He simply preached the truth. He told them how they needed to repent, and they were ready to throw him off a cliff. Must have broken his heart, it doesn't say. He wept, but it had to be heartbreaking. This, was, this is where he grew up. Maybe Joseph, his father, had made some furniture for some of these people. This is where his family worshiped. This was his hometown. In Luke chapter eight and verse 26, continuing in the gospel according to Luke, we have the story of the Gadarene demoniac. In Luke chapter eight, fairly lengthy story, but we come down to the end of it. Jesus has driven the evil spirits. He's driven the legion, the evil spirits, into the pigs. They've gone down the hill. Look at verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the gatherings asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into a boat, returned. We don't know of anywhere in the scriptures where Jesus ever came back to this very specific region. When they asked him to leave, he'd done this wonderful thing for him, but, but they ran him out because they didn't understand what he was trying to do, what he had done. And Jesus knew what they'd face for all eternity without him, right? He knows what everybody will face for all eternity, right? They said, you need to leave. Must have broken his heart to leave them, knowing that they couldn't pay for their own sins. We have the story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, but I want to deviate here from Luke's account to Mark's. For just this one account, Mark 10, please. Because Mark gives us an added detail that I think is highly important here for this morning's lesson. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. As he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good but one, that is God. 
You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And, and this young man answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. This is a good kid. Let me tell you what. Then Jesus, looking at him, don't miss the next two words, loved him. Did Jesus want him in heaven with him? Did he? Sure did. Was Jesus going to die for this young man's sins? Yes, he was. Jesus loved him. You see, it's not a question of, does Jesus love any of us? It's the question of, do we love Jesus in return? Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loved him. And he said to him, he loved him enough to tell him the truth. One thing you lack, go your way, tell, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. Jesus loved this young man, knew what he was facing, knew he was going to die for him, and it must have really hurt when the young man just walked away. It hurts now when people walk away from the Lord, don't it? People we didn't even die for. It must have broken his heart. We go back to Luke chapter 13, and we would notice verses 34 and 35. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, the problem wasn't Jesus' love for them. It was that they were not willing to come to him to accept all that he had for them of that love and that grace and that peace and that mercy. And so from here in Luke 13, we'd move on to Luke 15 and notice the story of the compassionate father story we usually call the account of the prodigal son. Then we move on to chapter 16 and we'd note the account of the rich man and Lazarus which we talked about at length last Sunday morning. We move up to chapter 18 where Luke's account of the rich young ruler is that I just went to Mark for. And then up to our central illustration in Luke chapter 19 as we consider all of those things, how often the heart of God must have been broken, how often Jesus must have been saddened by people's refusal to just accept everything he so freely gave. And although it does not use the words specifically, Jesus wept, to me, perhaps the ultimate example of his heartbroken pain and anguish over those who would refuse to accept and follow him in his word because he knows the comfort, he knows the peace, he knows the security, he knows the eternity that they're giving up. This free gift, maybe the one that points that out to me at least as much as the others, is in Luke 23. Jesus has been beaten and scourged at this point, spat upon and all of those things, and he's about to face more. He's on his way to Golgotha to be crucified Friday morning. And in Luke 23, verse 26, we see that he's so weak from the beating he's taken and the blood loss. 
He can't even carry his cross. The great multitude of the people, verse 27, followed him. Women who also mourned and lamented him. These women are crying for Jesus. They're seeing this man that has been just ripped and torn apart, just this, this bloody walking skeleton, if you will, who's going out to be crucified, and they're, they're, they're crying over Jesus. And, and Jesus, he knows the physical pain he's been through. He's felt every inch of it, but he turns to these women and he says, don't cry for me. I'm not the worst off here. The implication being, you can see what they've done to me, but let me tell you what, this ain't nothing compared to what's gonna to happen to you because you refuse to accept this gift that I'm going up there and pay for for you right now. Now that's, that's my words, we'll use Jesus' words. We'll use the Bible's words. Look at me in Luke 23, beginning at verse 26. As we just said, couldn't carry his own cross. Verse 27, great multitude of the people followed him. Women also mourned and lamented him, but Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. And I doubt very seriously he said it like that. After the way that man had been beaten, he probably couldn't hardly get his swollen lips open to say some of these words, let alone full phrases. But weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, the breasts which never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Jesus is telling them, Look, if they'll do this to me, the Son of God, what on earth do you think they're going to do to you who've rejected me? Don't you understand? That what has happened to me and the gift that I am providing, Jerusalem, daughters of Jerusalem, Jerusalem has rejected this. He wept over the city. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't accept his gift. They didn't have any idea how horrible the rejection of that gift was going to be. And then we read down, of course, to those who crucified him, verse 34, talk about a heartbroken Jesus. Heartbroken, not, not because these soldiers and these people had put him on a cross and driven spikes into him, not, not heartbroken over that, but heartbroken because he knows what these people are going to face if they don't have their sins forgiven. He knows that what they're going to face for all eternity is so much worse than what he's going through that he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He didn't say, Lord, save me. Could Jesus have said, Lord, save me, and had all those legions of angels show up, and that would have been the end of it? Uh-huh. Could have. Didn't. He wasn't weeping for himself. He wasn't weeping for his pain. Because he knew that to reject all those gifts and all those wonderful things that we have in Christ because we've been forgiven, that if they didn't have those, he knew what their eternity was going to be. That's why he prayed for them. But of course, those that had been deceived by Satan, those who refused to accept God's word, they continued to sneer, verse 35, to mock, verse 36, and to blaspheme, verse 39 the very one who was dying to give them everything I talked about at the beginning of this sermon. Jesus understood 
exactly what was at stake, exactly what was in store for each and every soul for throughout all eternity who rejected him and his word and his grace and his authority and his lordship and his leadership in their lives. Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other, and he knew that. But as I say, he also knew what was at stake and in store for each and every one who would face God on judgment day without his blood covering their sins. I have a question. Do we understand that? Do we understand exactly what is at stake and in store for each soul throughout all eternity who have not had their sins covered by the blood of Christ? I'm not sure we do. And I'm speaking for me too. As we go about, and here's, here's kind of something to think about in light of that when I say I'm not sure we do. The whole reason he wept over him is because he understood what was going to happen. And I say I'm not sure we do. Let me ask it this way. As we go about our lives, Shoto, Maisie, Pryor, wherever, as we go about our daily lives, and we do business in and around Shoto, what do we see? What do we really see? When we look at people, anybody, who've not had their sins covered by the blood of Christ, Do we picture that person in hell for eternity? Do we really understand that's the case? Do we mistake good for forgiven? We deal with some good people. We deal with some good businessmen, some good classmates. We deal with some good people. We deal with some moral people. Do we mistake good for forgiven? I think sometimes we can do that. We'll say, well, salvation is not based on works, and it's not, but I think sometimes that gets in there and we think, well, this person's a really good person, surely. Listen, Cornelius was a good person, right? Cornelius, about as good as they come, Acts chapter 10 and verse 2. Was Cornelius forgiven because of his goodness before Christ? Before Christ? Before Pete? No. He was a good man. He gave alms, whole family, prayed to God. He was as good as they come. But up until the end of chapter 10, when he was baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of the, the few sins he had, he wasn't forgiven. Even the best of people have sins. And so I ask again, do we mistake good? Well, that, that's a good person. I don't really need to talk to them about Jesus because they're really good and they're moral and they're this and they're that. Folks, don't mistake good for forgiven because even the best of people still have a sin or two or three or more, right? And no sins need to get forgiven. And you know what? Maybe it would help if we pictured some of these people in, in, in their eternity. But I'll tell you what, 
You know what Satan's going to do? Satan's going to do everything in his power when you go out of this building and you start talking to somebody who's not a Christian. Satan is going to do everything in his power to make you stay away from this sermon this morning. Not picture them as on fire. Not, not picture them as not saved. Well, they're good people. And, and, and it's great that we know good people. That's awesome. We need more good in this world, amen? <laughs> but even good people need Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. Do we understand what's at stake? Do we see people the way Jesus saw people? Are we ready to weep over Shoto? Question two. Do you want to weep whenever we have visitors and the visitors show up and never come back? Because maybe the church, I had us accused once, Churches of Christ, um, why don't you people have an organ? You can't afford one? It's, no, I don't really know. That's not why. You know, people have different tastes. I once invited a truck driver friend of mine to services. He only came once. And when I talked to him about it several weeks later, he said, I said, why didn't you come back? He said, you guys just sing too much. Just like, you ever heard that one? I was a new one to me. I don't think I've heard it since either. Listen, do we weep when we see visitors come for whatever reason? from maybe years ago, and they only come once because it's not what they're looking for. Brethren, Jesus Christ is what they need, whether it's what they're looking for or not. Do we want to weep over those members of the body who have completely and totally given up on church years ago and gone back into the world? We should. Question number three. Does it make us want to just sit down and cry whenever we ride by some huge man-made denominational church building that's not in the word of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, or not in Christ? And we see wonderful but misled souls deceived into thinking they're going the right way when they're on a way that is different than the narrow way God describes in his word. Because if we don't want to weep at those three things, maybe, maybe, We've forgotten what's at stake. Maybe we've forgotten that our primary purpose as the Lord's church is onefold. To tell the lost world about the love of God and how to have their sins forgiven through the blood of Christ. I want to Begin, I want to end where we began. We are the most blessed people on earth. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything. In him we have, re- we have forgiveness through his blood. We have redemption. We have eternity. We've been given the spirit as a guarantee, Ephesians 1.15. We've got it all. I'm so grateful that back in 1984 and five, somebody cared enough for my soul and where it was headed for eternity that they helped me to find the place where the word of God 
stand supreme. They help me to find that church that we see in scripture, which is the pillar and support of the truth, 2 Timothy 3:14. That same truth that will judge us all on the last day, John 12:48 through 50, and they cared enough for me to talk to me about Jesus, to talk to me about the Bible, to show me the way so that I could be set free, set free, totally free from sin and death, John chapter 8 verses 31 and 32. Brethren, We need to get back to telling people about Jesus. That needs to be our everything. I hope you'll be back tonight. We're going to talk more about it. But in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. Typically, at this time in the lesson... We offer an invitation, and we're certainly offering that invitation this morning. It is twofold, typically. This morning it's going to be 2 and 2A, I guess. Number one, if you've heard this lesson this morning and you're not in Christ, you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or you'd like a Bible study, you'd like to study this further because you want to know, because you don't need to be baptized if you don't know why. If you'd like a Bible study, we'd love to help with that. You can make that known. Or if you've studied the scriptures and you're sure and you know why the scriptures say to be baptized and you'd be baptized into Christ, we'd love to have you baptized into Christ this morning. God sure would. Or if you need the prayers of the church to be stronger in any way, including to tell somebody about your Savior, we'll pray for you. That's a typical invitation and it's certainly open this morning. The only addition I would make this morning is this. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. It's been specifically selected in light of this morning's lesson. And I want you to really not just sing the invitation song and think, okay, then we can get up and have the prayer and, and you know, service. I want you to really think about the words. This song was selected for the words. We're not ultimately familiar with it, maybe, as a congregation. But it's worth it to focus on the words. It is our invitation to take the gospel and do what the church was designed for. If you have a need this morning, please come to the front as we stand and sing this song. <laughs> 